Oh, don't put your books away. I need you to look in the catechism with me. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, turn with me to Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. I mentioned earlier that in Lord's Day, in the previous Lord's Days to 23, uh, there we read and have the explanation of the Apostles' Creed, what we believe concerning all the articles of the Christian faith. So Lord's Day 8 to 22 is uh, going through the, the, the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. Before that in Lord's Day 7, the question is asked, are all saved by Christ like they perish through Adam? And the answer is no, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. So in Lord's Day 7, the Catechism turns to the doctrine of faith that we're saved by faith alone in Christ Jesus. And that's how 21, question answer 21, explains it. What is that true faith? It's a faith in the triune God. It's a faith in Christ Jesus. Then the summary of the faith and then the explanation of the faith. So Lord's Day 7 is one bookend of the Apostles' Creed. It introduces us to the Apostles' Creed. And Lord's Day 23, and you could say also 24, is the other bookend. So we're coming to a conclusion. We're, we're coming to a, a summary of why and what we believe in order to be saved. What we notice in all of these Lord's Days, uh, in between those two bookends... And also, we see it now in Lord's Day 23, are often questions like, what does it benefit you that you believe such and such? What benefit do you receive when you say so on? What, what comfort is it to you that, and then another article of the Christian faith. And, and those questions could equally be asked like this, or stated this way, what's the use that we believe this? Or why is this important that Christ rose from the dead, for example? Or what's the profit that Christ ascended into heaven? And so on and so on. What good is it now? What does it help you now? See that in Lord's Day 23? What does it help you now that you believe all this, all these 12 articles of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed? Those are important questions, brothers and sisters. And, and it's important in this way. The Catechism is not this book of doctrine, cold doctrine, information, data, that we have to internalize in our brains and, and say out loud to God. No, what we believe concerning our triune God as it is summarized in the Apostles' Creed means something for us and something to us. The truth that we confess in this creed leads us to being saved. It means, it, it leads us to being transformed and renewed to, unto a new life before our Father. 
So this is how Lord's Day 23 then puts it as it wraps up and concludes the study of the content of the Apostles' Creed. What does it help you now that you believe all this? It's a great question. And the answer is, when I believe this, I am righteous before God. I am an heir to life everlasting. So this afternoon, we will consider then faith's rich benefit. That's how we summarize the message. Faith's rich benefit. We'll see that by faith we are, one, righteous before God, and two, heirs to life everlasting. So who are we, brothers and sisters? Who are we really? Who are we legally, morally? Before God and before all men, before ourselves, right? Our catechism talks about our conscience, my conscience. Before ourselves, we are ones who stand before God as accused of sin and guilty as charged and worthy of eternal prison and punishment. That is who we are by nature. And what we confess today in Lord's Day 23 is that by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in the triune God, all of that changes. Faith leads to our acquittal before the judgment seat of God. It's like we stand before the judge in a courtroom and guilt is all over the place. The judge knows it. The jury knows it. The people in the audience know it. We know it. And yet the judge says, not guilty. You are acquitted. Now that doesn't mean that we don't sin. No, what it means is that because we have faith, we in fact admit our sin, our daily sins, and how we have become worthy before God, righteous before God, by faith, by His grace. Yes, by His grace. How did we get this way that we are not guilty, but we are and we are acquitted before the judgment seat of God. How did that come about? Brothers and sisters, look at our catechism. God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ. That's a, a big word, impute. Maybe the catechism students remember the explanation of that word. That word means something like being reckoned, being considered. Or you could say it is not held or charged against us. So our sins are not imputed to us. But Christ's righteousness is. So see how the Lord's Day uses it. 
Christ's perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness is imputed to me. It's, it's placed into my account. But there's the other imputation I just mentioned, and that is the imputation of sin. We can, in fact, talk about, in theology, of a double imputation. We confess the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but we also believe the imputation of Adam's sin. His sin in the Garden of Eden is held against us. It's imputed to us. It comes into our account. How is that? The imputation of Adam's sin means we don't only inherit Adam's sinful nature, the pollution of his body, but also the guilt of his first sin. Because Adam was our human and covenant representative on earth. What he did, we did in him. He is guilty. We are guilty. Not only is the pollution of sin passed on from generation to generation, but also the guilt of sin. And we must admit that transgression. We must be willing to say to the judge of heaven and earth, we are guilty as charged. Not just of my daily sins, but of Adam's sin. As I said, the Catechism mentions that my conscience accuses me of this. The conscience that is of a believer. When we read in our Catechism, what does it help you now that you believe all this? And then the next question is, how are you righteous before God? We're talking about the believer the conscience of a believer is activated by the grace of God more than of an unbeliever. Even amongst unbelievers, the conscience is somewhat active. But with believers, it becomes greatly activated. It's governed now by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. God's grace is working in us, and our conscience is therefore then accusing us that we are sinful by nature, and that we have also daily sins, and that we have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. And to receive the righteousness of Christ, we have to confess, first of all, that guilt and transgression. If we're not willing, beloved, to, to confess our sin and wretchedness, then it shall be for us, as it states in Psalm 32, the rhymed version, when I kept silent, sinful ways condoning, I pined away through my incessant groaning. Your hand weighed down on me in my deceit. My strength was sapped as by the summer's heat. Beloved, when we do not confess our sins, we are toiling under the burden of our sin. We're carrying our sins on our own shoulders unwilling to unburden ourselves upon the Lord. But when we confess our guilt, when we acknowledge our sin, when we pray to God, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then we will be accepted by God through grace. Then we are made righteous and, and, and pray like David prays in Psalm 32, 
Again, the rhyme version, to you, O God of justice and compassion, I then at last acknowledge my transgression. I said, my misdeeds I to you confess, and you forgave my guilt and sinfulness. Beloved, in making this confession of sin, we acknowledge the accusations of others, but also of our own consciences, as well as of the Word of God, that all of those accusations are true then there's no excuse coming from our lips. We're not trying to justify our actions. Then we look outside of ourselves and we put our faith in God's Word and and are justified. Then God puts on us, like we sang in Psalm 30, the robes of righteousness. We're not guilty. In Christ I am righteous before God, says our catechism, and heir to life everlasting, not in myself, not in my own works, but in Christ alone. We are righteous in Christ. When we acknowledge our sins, then our sins are washed away through His blood by grace. When we acknowledge that Jesus Christ became the curse for us in our place, then we are righteous. He, offering up Himself as the sacrifice for our sins, said to the Father, Father, do not hold their sins against them. In other words, do not impute them with their sins, but impute to me their sins. That's what Jesus is essentially saying on the cross. And he's saying, impute to them my righteousness. Father, punish me so that she might go free. Bring your wrath against her sin on me so that you can love her as your own. Curse me so that you can bless him. Render to my account the sins of the whole world, including his, and fill his account with all the righteousness which you have required of him. Despite our sins and accusations against us, God declares, he's willing to declare us righteous to justify us. God's not pretending when He says this. That is, He's not pretending that we don't have sins then. It's not like He's looking the other way saying that sin doesn't really matter. He doesn't begrudge us saying that He really wants to punish us and should punish us, but He won't. But He's looking upon us as if we never had nor committed any sin. He's looking upon us as if we ourselves had accomplished all the obedience that He required of us. God is looking at us and He says, innocent. As if you have never sinned. Never. It's as if we've done everything God has asked of us. This is the sweet doctrine of justification. This is what it means to be saved by faith alone. The Father has punished His own Son, Christ. Jesus has offered Himself up for us and He says, I love you. I will save you. You have done all that I asked. Good and faithful servant. Because of the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness is not in us, 
The Father blesses us by imputing Christ's righteousness to us and curses the Lord Jesus Christ by imputing our iniquity to him. It's like we can take and make a, a direct deposit out of our account into Jesus' account of all our sins and debts, and then Jesus puts a direct deposit into our account of all that was required of us and even more, eternal life. We confess today that God justifies, that God declares us righteous without any merit of our own, but only out of mere grace through the blood and death of Jesus Christ. And we receive these things by faith only when we accept this promise in our heart. That's how faith, how believing all this helps. And that is how it has always been, brothers and sisters. Always. Beginning with Adam until now and until Christ returns. Yes, not only in the New Testament age, not only in the days of the Christian church, the early Christian church, but from the very beginning, from Adam and Noah and Moses, the Israelites, all are saved by faith alone. That's what we read in Romans 4. That's what is taught there. Says Paul, even Abraham was saved and declared righteous by faith only. In the passage we read together, Paul supports his argument that justification is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, by appealing to the example of Abraham. That's an interesting choice because to his readers, many considered Abraham the true example of being considered righteous, saved by works of the law. So many at the time of Paul's writing believed Abraham was considered righteous and sustained in the covenant with God because of his own obedience, his own faithfulness, including being circumcised, willing to be circumcised. And so those people then relied on their own blood lineage and their works of the law, their circumcision to receive the inheritance promised to Abraham. But Paul shows that though Abraham did many good things, he in fact had nothing to boast about before God. Abraham was called and chosen by God before he was circumcised, says Paul. Circumcision was in fact the sign of the covenant blessings that Abraham received by faith before he was circumcised. And therefore, he was not saved by works of the law, but by faith. He did not earn his justification. It was credited to him as a gift. It was directly deposited into his account. And neither will the Romans be justified by blood relation to Abraham, by their circumcision, by their works of the law. That's Paul's argument. And it's that simple. It's not hard to understand. Anybody can understand this. All we must do is believe. Believe and you will be justified. 
Accept the work of Christ as your own. Believe that he has died for your sins. Believe that he has the power to wipe your slate clean. No matter how filthy or dirty you may feel morally, Jesus can make it clean. What saves us and justifies us is not the fact that we believe as such, but that this faith is anchored and rooted in Christ. Faith is the instrument that God uses, not we, God uses, to bestow His grace on us. He determines upon whom He will use it by His electing grace as He has chosen those from before the foundation of the earth. Well, brothers and sisters, having learned that the only way to righteousness is by acknowledging Christ and the triune God, we must heed the call then to faith and repentance. Trust in the promises of the Lord every day for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall be righteous in Christ. You can be certain of that. It's a guarantee. Not only today are you righteous, but unto life everlasting. And that brings us to our second point. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They became subject to sin and death. They became children of the devil, Jesus says in John 8. That's how he expresses it in terms of who we are because of our sin and death. Children of the devil. Ones who have to be removed from the presence of God. Not only did Adam and Eve fall from God's favor, but all of creation fell with them. The whole world became subject to sin and death. And since that day, the world has been groaning in travail, says Paul. To understand what justification is then, we need to, dis- to confess what sin is, that we are sinful. In order to understand to what justification leads, that's our second point, heirs to life everlasting, then we must also confess to what sin leads. This being subject to sin and death. Where does that lead? The Bible says sin leads to eternal death and eternal bondage. We wholeheartedly agree to the question posed at the baptisms of our children, which in part acknowledges that our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore subject to all sorts of sin and misery, including what? Including condemnation. Because of our depraved nature, we are worthy of eternal damnation. That is the sentence that fell on Adam and Eve and also on us. On the day that you eat of it, said God, you shall surely die. Death entered the world. Death entered Adam and Eve that fateful day. And the purpose of Jesus Christ coming into this world to die on the cross, the purpose that Christ had in His perfect life to live obediently before the Father, the purpose of our faith in that Christ is that we might be justified freely by grace, no longer considered sinful and guilty, so that we may be restored into God's favor and into His presence and receive eternal life. And so the whole world 
can be redeemed again from the slavery and clutches of sin and death. In Christ, by faith, we become children of God and heirs of life everlasting. What is an heir? An heir is a recipient. Uh, receives something, not that is due to him or her, but it's given as a gift. This happens often at the death of a parent. We are heirs of an inheritance. We have not earned this ourselves. We don't expect a larger share because we were a more faithful son or daughter. We acknowledge that an inheritance is a gift and it's received because of a pledge and a promise. As Hebrews 9 teaches us, the inheritance comes into effect, the will comes into effect only when there is death. And concerning the inheritance of eternal life, that death took place in Christ Jesus. When Christ died, then came the promise of life. Then there is the new inheritance, which lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. There is a restoration to paradise. There is a reversal of the consequences that have taken place in the fall into sin. Rather than death, we receive life. Rather than being subject to decay, we are subject to life. Rather than falling into sin and disobeying, we seek to do God's will and obey Him more and more. There is renewal of our lives. Already now is the beginning, is the foretaste of eternal joy. And therefore, through the righteousness that comes by faith, there's also the promise and the hope of life. Romans 5 says, Therefore, so right after our reading, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We inherit the new earth that is coming in which righteousness dwells. No, we do not enjoy it fully yet, but our right to it is guaranteed, and we shall in due course receive the complete inheritance. By faith we live in and in the knowledge that the inheritance is ours in Christ. But as I said, we experience now the beginning of that righteousness, of that eternal inheritance. Already now in the truth of our righteousness before God, we begin to live a righteous and holy life in the power of the Spirit of Christ. Not only are we washed with the blood of Christ, and you'll see that soon in Lord's Day 26, concerning the symbol of baptism, not only are we washed with the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, but by faith we are also washed in the Spirit of Christ, the renewal of our minds and bodies and lives. Because we belong to Christ, beloved, God is our Father, Christ is our Savior, the Holy Spirit is our Counselor, the Word is our Guide. So we may conclude. Lord's Day 23 asks the question, what does it help us that we believe all this 
And the answer is we're righteous before God. We're heirs of everlasting life. That's what the catechism has been busy with since Lord's Day 7. It has been the teaching, it has been teaching us the content of our faith, the faith, the very faith that leads to salvation. And here in Lord's Day 23, we're reminded of its benefit, that faith we share in the righteousness and life of Christ. We share in faith's rich benefit. Amen.